In today's episode of the Lifestyle Edit Podcast, I am talking to the wonderful Detox Kitchen founder, Lily Simpson. So I don't know if you guys know this, but the business actually started almost by accident. A friend who'd been trying diet delivery companies at the time just wasn't enjoying the food and asked Lily to cook, you know, healthy meals to help her lose weight. And that's where it all began. So she would cook wheat and dairy free meals every day for clients and deliver them to their doors all before 7 a.m. So Lily's always been a great cook, but after university, she actually trained to be a property developer. It was actually at a corporate function back in 2010, where the canapes were kind of on the grain boring side that she asked her boss if she could do the food next time. So she was coming up with all of these incredible healthy recipes. So phyllo cups filled with edamame beans and edible flowers, rice wraps filled with veg. And within six months, she'd left her job and was catering about six to seven events per week with clients like Joe Malone and Red Bull. So really big clients. But what I love so much about this interview is that she really breaks down that so much of her success is purely down to research, common sense, and her knack with Google. So she didn't have any ins with people in the industry. She literally started from scratch. Um, So to get the catering side of the business started, she simply put a list of 20 people that she wanted to work with, searched their details online and cold called them. She did the exact same with the delivery business. She wrote down a list of celebrities, called their agents and gave them a week free. Naturally, all of them signed up for more. So to launch the business, she secured a £10,000 bank loan, hired a web developer, and by the end of January 2012, had a roster of clients. She bought, cooked, boxed up and drove the food across London herself between 3 and 7am in the morning before processing orders, going back to an industrial kitchen and running the business, essentially. Um, She was literally surviving on about four hours sleep a night. But now she has a team of chefs, operations staff, and consultant nutritionists that manage that side of the business. The big turning point was when she opened a concession in Harvey Nichols Food Hall in London. That is what kickstarted the launch of her delis, which I'm sure you all know and love. She now has three in London and plans to open seven more in the next few years. She's currently looking at locations in Victoria, Shoreditch, and also in the Square Mile. Here is Lily Simpson. Okay, so Lily, so happy to be back here talking to you a year after the launch of this place. We're sitting in um, the Detox Kitchen Mortimer Street. Great to see you. Thanks for coming again. Thanks. So, <laughs> so let's start from the beginning. Can you kind of talk to me a little bit about life before Detox Kitchen? Uh, yes, I can. The joys of... <laughs> A responsible free life. <laughs> um, so before Detox, I worked in, I actually studied real estate management at uni. I uh, thought that I'd go into a standard kind of property job. Did that for four years and um, actually moved around quite a lot. So I had three jobs in four years. Mm-hmm. I worked for a, um, an architect's company and I worked for a concierge company and then I ended up working for a big development company. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, and so I learned a lot. I mean, I did business development. My kind of main role, I always ended up falling into the business development role. Okay. So I kind of knew that that's where I was heading. Yeah. Um, and then on my last job, I started catering for their events. So while I was working as trained to be a developer, I asked if I could cater for all of their in-house events, which they let me do. And then I slowly, they knew that I loved it. I yeah. Loved it. And so I kind of just uh, gradually went full-time doing that. 
um, set up a kitchen and basically became a private chef. I mean, I wasn't doing massive events, but I contacted all of the kind of big PR houses, all of the big fashion, beauty brands, um, because I knew that if I catered for them, I'd also get some kind of press coverage and out of it. So did all of that, did that for two years, and then launched Detox. So life back then was pretty, pretty relaxed, actually. It's <laughs> <laughs> comparison, I know, looking back. But... But it's, it's amazing. I always love hearing these stories of people who just have an idea, kind of get on with it, and have the balls to kind of put themselves out there. Like, did you, like, not have any qualms about just kind of cold emailing these people? I think for me, I mean, I, my drive has always been that I have got to make enough money to look after my family, to, to buy my mum a house, to buy my dad a house, to buy my dad a Porsche, like all of this stuff. And yeah. I, I, I've come from absolutely nothing and I it's just been my complete drive. And so for me, there's no risk I can take really that isn't too big because I, when I started Detox, I, had, I was in my overdraft. I had absolutely no money to my name. I couldn't call on anyone to help me. Yeah. My parents wouldn't have been able to just bail me out. So... That kind of put a huge amount of pressure on me and meant that I had to do things really quickly because if I didn't, I couldn't afford to burn money. And yeah. so, and even today, I still think I have that mentality. You know, even, you know, now we sit here and I've kind of built this fairly big business and we've raised a lot of money. I still feel those risks. And so yeah. I think that's what drives you forward. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I guess if I look at kind of why I done things and how quickly I've done it I think the reason I've done it is because I haven't really thought about it I've just yeah. been like you know that's been my drive and so when I think about emailing 20 people that I don't know I'm just like yeah fine I'm going to email 20 people that I don't know do like, it if they all say no to me what whatever I'll just move on yeah. so how did you kind of get the contacts because I guess you know finding the kitchen getting suppliers all of that kind of stuff how can you kind of talk me through that stage yeah so I guess it's funny actually because well, I was thinking about this just the other day and I was saying you could probably set up a business in a day if you really put your mind to it yeah and I think with you know if if you look at kind of the five things that you would need to start a business you need a kitchen mm-hmm you need a supplier, so a food supplier. You might need several food suppliers, but you need suppliers. You need to find a customer. You probably need a website. And um, one other thing. Oh, you probably need some kind of marketing PR yeah. plan. Yeah. So all of those five things, like finding a kitchen is a case of writing a list, going on the internet, literally looking for a kitchen. Yeah. Writing the list and then just picking up the phone and calling people. Yeah. You know, I think we wait too much these days. We You're send an email. So and right. We're like, how are you going to find a kitchen? It's like, you, if I needed to find a kitchen now for yeah. another project, I'd find it in half an hour. Yeah. So you just have to set really short time frames to do things. Um, and it's the same as, you know, like a marketing strategy. That should be on one piece of A4 paper. Even now I laugh when people are like, oh, what's your marketing strategy like? And I'm like, um, it's in my head. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of working, so it's yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, that's, it's definitely about not overthinking it. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's how, it all sounds, if you put it all together, it all sounds really difficult. But actually, if you break it down, it's super straightforward. Yeah. You know, finding a fruit, fruit and veg supplier, there are hundreds of fruit and veg suppliers in London. Yeah. It's, you know, I, actually, the fruit and veg supplier I have is the same, they're the same people that I had when I had my own catering company. So I've been with them for eight years now. Yeah. And, you know, they are literally cold called. I just, you know, went on to, I think I just literally went on Google, put in veg supplier, and, you know, called them. And then 
that was it. See, I love stories like that because I think when we hear of the success stories and kind of once everything's worked out, you believe that it must have been this like really convoluted story. They must have known someone. And sometimes, yeah, it just goes down to taking initiative and picking up the phone. Completely. I'm the least connected person, you know, honestly. <laughs> like, I don't know one. I'm like, I'm not super sociable. I mean, I have, like, really good close friends, but mm-hmm. if you stick me in an environment where I have to network, I just turn into a bumbling, complete mess, and I can't, you know... So I'm not the type of person that, yeah. you know, can pick up the phone to someone that I've known for years and ask them for a favour. I just didn't have that yeah. kind of access to people. So I really had to just do the whole cold calling thing. And, yeah, I mean, you know, don't worry if someone's going to say no to you. It doesn't yeah, matter. it's like, you're not worth... Exactly. Like, you haven't met them, it's just on a phone, that's it. So exactly. So, when you started the kind of catering side of the business, had you always had it in your mind at that stage for Detox Kitchen to become what it was today? I think... Probably there's two sides to that. So from a sort of ambition point of view, I always wanted a really big company. Okay. So when I started, I guess my I always saw the end goal. Yeah. Now the end goal is definitely not what I ever wanted to achieve. So my end vision is me standing in the tallest building in London, overlooking the city in a like power suit. Now that's never going to happen, and yeah. God help me if it does. <laughs> but that is kind of where I saw myself. It was this kind of picture of success. Yeah. And so I knew I needed to get there. I just wasn't sure how I was going to do it. And obviously, not having any money to start with, I couldn't. Um, you know, the idea of raising investment was completely alien to me. So that wasn't what I was going to do. And also, proof of concept was so important. Yeah. You know, it's a growing market. Um, and I wasn't sure that it was going to work. So I was willing to take risks, but not financial risks. Of course. For me. So. With the catering company, that was really... I knew I wanted to do something in food. I knew that catering is a really good industry to be in because you get the job. Payment terms are pretty quick. Yeah. Um, and the kind of the margins are really good. So, okay. You know, you. I was doing kind of maybe seven or eight events a week. Wow. Um, and that was to start off with. It was pretty. It was pretty easy for me to actually get jobs. But the, th- the thing that I focused on was just quality of the product. You know, yeah. I started putting edible flowers on everything, and people were like, "Wow, is that a flower? Can I eat it?" I yeah. Like, yeah. And it's like you know, just these kind of little details. Yeah. That you know. And then from there, we just kind of grew that business. But being in that business, I knew that I was it was completely reliant on me. Yeah, because how many people did you have supporting you at that point? So then. It, in the other kind of events catering industry, it's much more you bring on a team when you have an event. Okay. So the bigger the event, the bigger the team I would kind of build around me. So I didn't actually employ anyone when I had my own catering company. Mm-hmm. I just, um, you know, I was at every event. I was cooking everything. But I think once I let someone else do an event for me, it was absolute shambles. And, really? You know, it's tiny little details like where you put the edible flower on the canopy. Yeah. And it makes a massive difference. And, and your reputation is on the line at every single event. So I didn't enjoy that pressure of not being able to delegate and yeah. having everything fall on me so and I know it wasn't a scalable business really I yeah. mean you know catering companies can be but it you know it's to not... keep that personal touch which is why people were booking you exactly yeah it requires you your trading time for money yeah so so I kind of knew that very early on I think probably within a couple of months and so the catering was just a kind of means to an end so yeah. I was establishing a kitchen you know uh-huh. I needed to get enough revenue so that I could then have a you know, my own kitchen. Yeah. And so once I got to that point, then it was a case of kind of thinking through different ideas that I might be doing whilst running catering. Yeah. And actually that was the thing that really helped me because I established my supply chain 
before mm. I actually launched Detox Kitchen. So I had all the people that I relied on. So when I did launch, I could launch very quickly. Yeah. I could control the quality. So how did you manage that? Because I think that's something that so many entrepreneurs struggle on. I've even had that with my business at certain stages where you have this element that's really great for cash flow. But yes, you get the high return, but it's really demanding on your time. Mm -hmm. And you know that if you just get past that and start that next thing, things will start to like even out. But it's like finding that time to do the research on that next thing. How did you balance that seven events a week? Going back to what I said earlier, I didn't really think about it. I really, you know, I kind of knew, basically what happened with detox is a friend of mine, I, she knew I was cooking and catering, so she said to me, um, I've been trying these diet delivery services, none of them are really working, I'm not really enjoying the food, can you just send me some of your food that you're cooking? Mm-hmm. And so I was like, yeah, fine. So then I sent her some food, she loved it, and I just carried on doing it almost like a catering job rather okay. than a detox kitchen. And then I started looking into that market um, testing competitors, like seeing, I, did, I you know, really, and I've never been in the kind of diet food world. Yeah. And so I just found it really interesting. And at that stage, food was very much still calorie-led, beige, boring kind yeah. of food. This kind of whole healthy, interesting, delicious revolution hadn't happened yet. Yeah. And so, but I didn't, I didn't think about that. I didn't think, wow, this is a gap in the market. I just saw that the competitors weren't doing the best job, knew that I could do it better, and I literally just went with it. So I delivered it to her. I set up a website within a month, and I just ran them, ran them alongside each other. And yeah. when I knew that Detox was working, because within the first um, month, we had 30 customers a day. Wow. Which was, you know, for a premium product, it's quite expensive. Um, you know, we were doing What were the right. prices like? So they were, it's thirty five ninety nine a day. Wow, okay. So, we, I mean, the revenues in the first year weren't massive, but they were much bigger than I thought they were going to be, yeah. and they were a lot bigger than catering. So I knew immediately where the business, where the business was. Where yeah. um, And, I mean, it was much harder work than the catering. So although, you know, it needed my time a lot more, but I could see where I could start employing people. Yeah. So, yeah, I employed a chef within nine months of launching Detox Kitchen. So okay. before that, I did everything myself. I did deliveries, food, PR, the whole lot, which was, you know, nearly killed me. Wow. But I loved it, and I'm so glad I did that, because once you start employing people, and I think it's really important that once you employ people, to have been there and done that, and done all the rubbish. Exactly, work, yeah. You know, that means that people can relate to you, and they respect you a little bit more. Yeah. Which is, you know, you need these days. <laughs> Yeah, and you, you know what goes into it too. Yeah, and you can help problem solve, you know. Exactly. If I hadn't done the deliveries, and I'm now talking to sister on the phone, I'm like, I've done that delivery, I know that route, yeah. so don't mess me around. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> okay, so the chef was your first big hire. So what impact did that make on the business and your ability to start? And that's a actually. Yeah. So, that was, um, so that was about nine months. I was still in the kitchen until about a year and a half but not as much, so I kind of could step back so I could focus a little bit more on the sort of marketing and PR side of things um, and just kind of look more at the kind of, you know, up until that stage when I was in the kitchen, I was just making it up as I went along. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I had, a, I had a really basic formula that I would follow, but then I had to put start putting proper operational things in place. So it just allowed me to get everything kind of, straight um and we also then opened Harvey Nichols so I when I employed the chef I had a meeting with Harvey Nichols a couple of weeks later Mm -hmm. and they I literally 
toddled up with my bag of granola, hoping that they would stock it, and they asked me to do a full-on salad bar concession, so which how, was amazing. So how did it go from that to, to a full-on concession? Just in one meeting. It was amazing. So had they already had that in their mind? I, they must have, because when I turned up with my bag of granola, I was like, I would love to sell this in your store. And they were like, well, we've actually got a bit of a different kind of idea for you and pitched to me to oh, do the wow. salad bar. So I was like, yeah, I can do that, sure. And obviously, the, so when you said earlier, you know, did I imagine having all the delis? Yeah. Definitely not. You know, yeah. that was very much, that meeting with Harvey Nichols happened. Yes. And then I was like, okay, I can probably do that. And that would work. And so we opened that fairly quickly. But I needed some, um, so that's when I got my angel investors. Yeah. to set up a little bar like that, it doesn't seem like it would be expensive, but once you've got a marble top, a sunken fridge, you know, and all of those things. So that cost us about 15 grand, I think, to put that in. Wow. So I got angel investment for that. Um, so how were you able to kind of do the math and figure out, okay, how much am I expecting to get back from this? Did they give you lots of data or information? How can you even start to yeah, I figure guess, that out? I always have this thing in my head, and I remember one of when I was working in property, someone said it to me, and it's an actually an awful phrase, and I must change it because <laughs> it's not very detailed kitchen, but he basically said, if you can't fit it on the back of a fag packet, <laughs> it's not worth it. I was like, all oh, right, okay. But it's kind of just really stuck with me. Yeah. And so, you know, I could have put a business plan together for Harvey Nichols in itself, and I could have looked at their footfall, and I could have, you know, I could have gone into so much detail about the type of customer and the offering and all that kind of thing. But in my mind, I was like, I need 100 people to come and eat our salads that day, and I think they're going to pay this amount for them, and I'm going to be able to make them for this amount. And basically, that's it. You know, it's not kind of... And I still am like that with our delis. You know, we're yeah. about to open our third deli. And, you know, yes, we look more into the footfall. We look more at competitors. Yeah. We see what they're taking. And, you know, we use all of that information. But at the end of the day, you need to just say, how many people are going to walk through the door? How can I get them through the door? And how much yeah. money are they going to pay for this food? And does that amount make sense from our point of view? Are we going to make profit from this? And it's that simple. So... Just talking about how much someone would pay for that, mm. do you feel like the price, how much people are willing to pay for kind of healthy food has changed from when you launched that deli to today? So Harvey Nichols was a bit different just because it, um, the people going there were spending more. Yeah. And so um, our pricing has changed dramatically. It was quite funny, mm. funny story actually because I, when I first opened that, I had it as a weighing... Mm. So you would come, oh, pick okay. your salads, and then you would weigh it. Yeah. And the first day we opened, I did that with everyone, and I couldn't believe the amount of money people were paying on these salads. It was like fifteen pounds, and I was so embarrassed that by the time I got to the till to charge them, I'd just like discount it. <laughs> so the scales would be like, "That's fifteen pounds." I'd be like, "Oh, that's only nine pounds." Oh. There you are. And <laughs> yeah. so from there, I was like, "Okay, this weighing thing doesn't work." And yeah. especially for me, you know, this it wasn't about creating another premium product because yeah. we already have that with the home deliveries. This, the delis became much more kind of my mission to get this to the masses. Yeah. And I knew that if we wanted to do that, we had to start competing with the likes of prep. And I know it yeah. sounds crazy, but, you know, that's where I see this business going is, you know, yeah. you choose a prep sandwich or you come to us for an amazing salad. And yeah. if we can get to a point where you can have the same amazing salad that's made fresh every day using the most amazing ingredients, or you can have a sandwich... You know, it's kind of like, hmm. Yeah, it makes people start rethinking really their choices. Yeah, but then, you know, that 
has massive knock-on effects for our business and how we structure it and you know really a lot of my time now is taken up with looking at the cost of our you know going to the suppliers trying to get them down on on their pricing you know one thing I don't want to do is compromise on quality and so it's much more about looking at the recipes trying to pack in as much flavor yeah but also really thinking about the cost yeah um, so yeah it's difficult and every day you know sometimes we get salads and and it's like we're giving it away for free because it's so expensive to produce but yeah. it's just the balance of that, that you so talk to me a little bit about the angel investments because I think that's definitely one of the things that I get emailed about the most it's like the money stuff angel versus VC it can feel really confusing if you haven't gone through that process so mm-hmm. what is an angel investor why did you decide to go down that route to begin with and what was what are some of the pros and cons so I've done pretty much everything now when it comes to raising money. I got a £10,000 loan from HSBC. Mm-hmm. So that's, I would, anyone starting business, I would definitely advise go to the bank first. Okay. Um, I know it feels risky, but at the end of the day, if, as long as it's a fairly small loan, I took on a £10,000 loan having, you know, still being in an overdraft myself personally. Yeah. So I would never have been able to pay that back. But yeah. it put pressure on me to then... To deliver, back. yeah. So I think, you know, look at bank funding first. Then private, uh, no, not private equity, sorry, angel investment, which is what I got next for a smaller amount. Um, so an angel is basically someone who won't be involved, so they're not strategic. They're okay. just someone who um, will give you money um, in, and you know, they're taking on the main risk, angel mm-hmm. investors, because they tend to invest earlier, um, so it's much riskier. Um, but then in exchange for that, you give them a bit more equity. Okay. I would say when you're looking for angel investors, if you can get someone that you know and trust, like really know and trust, it will be much better for you because I definitely feel the most important thing when it comes to investors, hands down, is that you trust each other. Yeah. Because you know, as your business grows and as your team grows, you have got to have people around you that are all on the same page. Yeah. And my angel investors are definitely that. You know, okay. I, ha- I had three angel investors. We actually have subsequently bought one of them out. But, um, you know, Pete who's kind of my main angel investor, I call him the whole time and he thinks I'm completely mad. I yeah. know he does. And he's like, Lily, you don't need to worry about that. You don't need to think about that, whatever. Yeah. But he's just a really good sounding board. Yeah. And that is worth so much more to me than the money that he put in initially. Yeah. Um, and angel investors tend not to be as um, kind of full on. So Pete, for example, who is the perfect angel investor, he never asked me for a management account he never asked me for a cash flow he was just like how's business Lily and I'm like yeah it's cool you know we're making some money and we're yeah. profitable so it's fine and that's enough okay. and ancient investors t- tend to be a little bit more relaxed like that they're but not you... that knocking on your door every week exactly. okay but you also have to remember when now in the UK if you if someone invests in your business generally they will get EIS which is an enterprise investment scheme and it's basically set up to get more people investing in small businesses oh, okay so what that means it doesn't mean a massive amount to you as a business but it means that the investor investing will get a 50% tax break if they invest so say they invest 100,000 that year that they invest they will get 50,000 pounds off their personal tax allowance Ah. So basically, they're investing half the amount of money. So yeah. it, it kind of mitigates the risk more for more them, for them. Okay. which is great. Okay. So what I would say is that there are lots of angel investors out there because of this this EIS scheme. Um, so it's actually not that difficult to raise that type of money. Because how did you find yours? I actually so when I used to do catering, um, Pete and Amelia were one of my 
clients. I what guess. are the chances? But they, I did actually, I was introduced to them through a guy at university. So okay. then I started catering for them. I, Pete has a farm in Oxford and I used to go up and do their shoots, which I loved. Um, cooking like massive big stews for like 40 men on the shoot was quite funny. <laughs> um, so yeah, he, that's how I know him. And yeah, and he, you know, so he's still obviously an investor. And then, so from there, then when we used to raise some serious cash, we went um, private equity. How was that process? I mean, it's such a funny world, private equity, because, and for me, I was like, wow, this is amazing. We're going to raise millions of pounds, and how cool is that? And, you know, just looking at it from a completely naive kind of point of view, I guess. And, you know, I thought once the money was in my account, it would be this amazing kind of champagne-popping moment, when actually... When, you, when you're ready to raise money and when people... You know, we had offers from probably 10 VC houses. Wow. So, you know, I knew that we were in a good position. I knew, you know, we were a profitable business, which is quite rare in this sort of industry, that had been started from scratch. There was, you know, single founder. It's kind of like VC heaven. Yeah. Um, but now I can say that now I look back. When I was in the moment of, of raising the money, I really lost my confidence. Really? Because, Why? Because I, hadn't, I had no experience in, in raising that amount of money. You know, we're talking millions of pounds, well, two million pounds. And I, I think I, you know, when you're sitting against people, sitting in front of people who have been doing that for 20 years, yeah. and you're there, you know, I have no experience in, in any of that. All I know is that I've got a really great business and that I know that it's worth money and that I want it to grow. Yeah. And I always look at things in a much more kind of open, light-hearted way. Yeah. Private equity houses, VC houses do not. You know, it's much more aggressive money. And for me, I mean, I have a really, really good relationship with our with our guys, our private equity guys. And I knew that I needed strategic help. Yeah. Um, because being on my own, you know, I'm not I'm definitely a jack of all trades and a master of none. I mean I really I know the basics of absolutely everything. So for me I wanted them to help me build a really strong team. I wanted to bring a managing director on board, I wanted to get a chairman on board, and I wanted to look at this company of, you know, where can we you know, how can we make it massive basically? But yeah. in but with me as the founder kind of reining it in as much as I can on quality of the product and the whole brand ethos and vision and so yeah you know I'm sat there kind of founder head-on yeah and they're there with the financial head-on and it's, it does clash at times you know it's bound to yeah I, I, I you know I don't think you'll ever meet a founder who's raised money like that and not been through the same yeah um, but I think the key is to be prepared for it yeah, how, how did you prepare when you've never kind of had that experience? Did you know people who'd been through the same process? You could kind of rack their brains. How um, did you prepare? I should have, um, but I didn't. I'm, you know, I'm terrible at asking advice from anyone. Yeah. And so I just went in full steam ahead. Um, and also I needed the money. You know, we, we had just opened Mortimer Street. We wanted to put an offer in another property. Yeah. We were growing the team. And so I was at a point where I was like, okay, if I'm going to take the next step of this, and also we're in a hugely competitive market, you know, I wanted to be the person to take the next step. I wanted to be the company that were at the forefront. Yes. And so having that pressure on me as well, I needed to raise money quickly. So I probably made decisions far too quickly. Okay. And should have probably just, you know, gone out to the market, spoke to more advisors. Um, but, you know, you can say all those things in, in hindsight. hindsight. I sit here now, you know, we're fully funded. I've got an amazing team around me, and that's you know big thanks to the the, um, the private equity guys who have helped me do that. 
So our company is in, you know, we've really studied the ship in the sense of having that kind of, not having to worry about the financial side of the business has meant that we've, from an operations point of view, I think that we are in the best position from a competitor standpoint to now grow this company quickly and efficiently and not have to compromise on any of our, on anything else. So you haven't actually had that um, VC funding when you opened Carnaby Street or Mortimer? No. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so I mean, yes, when I look at That's actually, insane. Um, that's like it's like prime London. I know. Well, Kingley, I mean, it's literally the dream site. And that's when, you know, I, it's a really difficult band. And I, I really try to stop saying, my mum is always like, stop saying it's all down to luck. Like, I see how hard you work. Yeah. Um, and it isn't all down to luck. But Kingley is a very special site. Yeah. So I, but then I say it's luck. I mean, I walked past that site when it was a shirt shop. And I was like, that shirt shop does not look like it's doing particularly well. So I contacted Shaftesbury, yeah. the landlord, because yeah. I knew that Shaftesbury was obviously having a property background. I knew that they owned most yeah. of Carnaby. And they did own the unit, and they were like, yeah, actually, the shirt, the shirt shop's going into administration, and that unit's going to be available in, in a month's time. And I was like, what oh, are God. the chances? Uh, okay, cool. Um, can I have it? And they were like, <laughs> and, and yeah, they love the concept. They needed a yeah. food brand, and they were like, yeah, great. And they're very supportive, Shaftesbury, of new businesses. Yeah. So, you know, it also helped that we were in Harvey Nichols so they could kind of see a bit see. of a track record. Yeah. And also I think the biggest benefit to us is having the home delivery service. You know, we had a massive, we still do have a massive celebrity following it, all these little things. Yeah. That when you then sit down in front of a big landlord, because they, as much as they support young businesses, they also want to see track record and that you're going to be able to pay the rent for the next three years. Yeah. So... Yeah, we opened that. I mean, it, it cost me 20 grand to fit that out. When I look at that now, and we recently did a refurb of Kingley, which cost a darn sight more than 20 grand. Um, but, you know, everything had to be done on a shoestring because I didn't want to raise more money. I didn't want to be diluted. And so I just had to get it up and running. But it's things like that that you don't think of. You know, I had to pay a rent deposit of £10,000. I had to pay you know, all the kind of VAT bills and everything that kind of, you know, I didn't, yeah. my cash flow kind of spreadsheet probably wasn't as accurate as it should have been. <laughs> and, um, but I just made it work. And I think what going, sort of just looking at the cash flow point of view, I was completely in charge of our banking. Okay. So as much as I hadn't done a proper forecast, because I was there every single day seeing what was going in and out, I knew, I, I knew where we were from a cash flow perspective. I could manage okay. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that's been quite hard, actually, stepping back from there and allowing someone else to do it. Yeah. But yeah, so I opened that. And then we were bursting at the seams in our kitchen. So we had to open a, find a new kitchen, okay. which was solely our unit, and fit it out. Yeah. So that cost us 200 grand, which was a lot. Wow. So for that, I got a bank loan. Okay. Um, but I only got half of it from a bank loan, which okay. is quite lucky now, because I think bank funding then, when was that? I don't know. But anyway, um... To be fair, we're a profitable business, and I think that's what banks look for. Yeah. So we were in a good position. They lent us the money. We've since obviously paid it off. Um, and so that was great to be able to do that on profits from the business, yeah. basically. I so. love how confident you are in, once you make money, reinvesting it back into your business. I think for many entrepreneurs, that's what you struggle with. You've worked so hard, and you finally start seeing that you're in profit. It's like there is this... Yeah this natural instinct to be like, I want to claw onto it. But you, you can see this 
some of your success has been that you've, you've seen that bigger picture always, that as soon as you've made money, you put it back into growing the business. Yeah, I think if you've got that end goal of you want to grow your if you want to grow your business, you have to do that because your business is never going to grow if you take it out. Not unless you have like some serious tech company that's just printing money. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I've always paid myself the same wage and I only, only increased my wage when we got private equity funding. And the yeah. only reason I did that was because when with kind of outsiders looking into the company, it's very important that you're paid for what you do. Yeah, of course. And so, um, I mean, I'm still on a pitiful wage, but yeah. <laughs> but um, I see the end, you know, I see the end picture. And, yeah, I think it is important not to, you know, I know there's no short gain in this. This is, I'm in this for the long term and, you know, I'm not, you know, my lifestyle at the moment is, you know, I still live on a shoestring because yeah. my business is the most important thing and I need to make it work. And you have to be like that. That's very, very rare. And I think a lot of people, maybe from the outside looking in, think, you know, I'll, I'll have, you know, I own three delis. I have a concession in, in Selfridges. We've got this successful home delivery service that I would be like sitting, sipping <laughs> champagne in my penthouse apartment. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's just not true. And it's not yeah. true of so many businesses. You know? Yeah. If you really look at it, there are, you know, that's probably 0.1% of businesses. So true. It, it, within five years, get to a point where you can be sipping that champagne. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you have to definitely look long term. It's not a short term game. But because how do you feel as being a self-founder as, rather than going, you know, going into business with someone? Because mm. it's something that I've always toyed with when I've seen it, successful partnerships. I'm always like, oh, wouldn't it have been so nice to be able to, to kind of bounce off someone and have someone kind of take the flack when I'm kind of not feeling, you know, 100%. How do you find being on your own? And also, how were your personal relationships changing and evolving as your business became like your your number one focus? I think my personality does not suit being a co-founder. Mm-hmm. And that's because I'm quite, I'm actually quite introverted in a way but I'm also fairly self-confident, which is quite a difficult kind of person to deal with because I just believe I'm right all yeah, the time. Yeah. <laughs> and so if someone trying to tell me that I'm not right is quite, yeah, um, quite difficult. So, but then I'm quite, you know, I can be quite quiet, especially at work. I'm very much, I just like to get stuff done, get on with it and kind of move on. Yeah. Um, but having said that, I, I think, you know, going through fundraising making really big decisions for the company you know god i would love to i'd love to have had a co-founder who really understood you know i've got people around me and i you know who are amazing i had an operations director who's still with us she started about a year and a half into the company and she is such a brilliant support you know she really you know can bounce ideas off her we've now got a managing director which is again brilliant but um you know no one really understands what you're going through unless you're a founder. Yeah. Um, and I think you do make a massive compromise. You know, I, you know, you kind of start off with a big network of friends when you leave university. And then as your job gets more and more serious, you know, I couldn't go out every night of the week because I had to be up at three in the morning to do the deliveries and stuff. Exactly. And, you know, and for me, it's, you know, it all, all came down to my kind of quality of time yeah. with people. And... You know, there are lots of compromises that I made, but you know, I think they were the right. I made the right decisions, and you know, my friends are most so important to me. My family is so important to me, but it's all about kind of quality time with them. 
Definitely. I mean, my husband's probably taken most of the slack. <laughs> Bless him. Oh. But, um, you know, he sees how passionate I am about it. And, you know, sometimes when I get home late or have to leave super early in the morning, he's, he's completely understanding. And now I've got children. He is uh, incredibly helpful. So that's good. You have this incredible knack of, whether intentionally or not, just having a feeling, kind of getting into places before they explode. So... Carnaby, look at how much it has transformed mm. over the last few years. You guys are one of the first as part of that kind of new generation. The whole wellness space full stop, you were part of that. Mortimer Street, like, I w- it was always kind of the road that you went as you were going to somewhere. It was never a destination. Now, you've got Estee Lauder just next door. You've got all of these amazing restaurants. It's become, you've got a cycle down the road. It's completely transformed. How have you kind of always had that like knack of where things are going? Because it was interesting earlier that you were saying about operating in such a competitive sector, you have to kind of be willing to be the first sometimes. Definitely. And actually, funnily enough, Kingley, the amount of people that I spoke to and were like, don't go on Kingley Street, it's a cut through street, no one goes there, just don't do it, it'll be a disaster. And my instinct just said, just do it. And so I just did it. I didn't really listen to anyone, I just got on with it. And then the whole area was transformed. I mean, it was unbelievable. Mortimer Street was the same, and I took the the kind of Kingley Street mentality with me, and a lot of people, again, said, don't go there, it's a dead street. And to be fair, this, I, I you know, I knew that this area, I knew that Estee Lauder were going in next door, so I knew we immediately had a captive audience. Yeah. I knew that Cycle were down the road, obviously, because they were yeah. already there, so I knew that something was happening around the street. Facebook are obviously now going in just opposite us. Oh, they? Yeah, and so I kind of knew that that was going to happen, but the risk that I took was that it hadn't happened yet. Yeah. Um, and so I knew that Mortimer would be a bit of a slow burner, which is a risk to take because, you know, you can't really afford in this day and age for especially this type of business for it to be a slow burner. You know, yeah. you can have absolute banker sites. And so, but again, going back to it, I had the delivery business, which is a very highly profitable business. And I knew that we had a little bit of breathing space. So I was able to take that risk because I had that, you know, something to fall back on. Um, and also it's just interesting. You know, I came here. I remember when I first came to this unit, I had my son was like one month old. He was strapped to me. It was a construction site. And I was like, yeah, I think we can make this work. This is, uh, we can do this. And I pretty much just signed on the dotted line, you know. Yeah. Um, and actually, our, our third site, which we're opening next week, on, which is on Bernard Street, again, is quite a... I mean, it's less risky in the sense that there's more competitors around there. So yeah. we know that it trades well. Yeah. But for us as a business, it's quite different to the units that we've opened so far because it's more um, touristy. It's There's more students. It's kind of slightly lower income yeah. area. Um but for me, that's most exciting because if we work there, it means that we have a model that everyone loves. Yeah. It's not just kind of, it's not just a brand, it's something that people who, you know, the thing of the Kingly, I could market, I knew who I was marketing to. I was, you know, into, went into all of the local offices and the same with Mortimer. At Bernard Street, it's totally different. You know, you don't have those kind of really big fashion, beauty yeah. brands. And so it'll be interesting to see how it trades, but I, I think it's going to be good <laughs> so how do you decide like from a growth perspective first of all like now is the time to open somewhere else um we're always looking for sites so it's more a case of when we see a good site um that kind of 
starts the starts process. It, yeah, yeah, exactly. However, at the moment we're looking at because obviously we want to grow the delivery side of the business as well. Yeah. And that's been put on hold mainly because I was concerned about product quality. Yeah. And you know we're already kind of at our ceiling. Um, we have a lot of bespoke orders, so it can be quite a difficult thing to operate. So we need to extend our kitchen in order to do that. But now we're kind of ready to really focus on that side of the business. And so from a growth perspective, the delis will come. So as we get good sites, yeah. we'll just take them on. I'm not going to say I will open this amount of sites in a certain amount of time because if I don't find the good sites, I'm not just going to take them. Of course, yeah. And also you enter like really long leases. You know, yeah. The lease that we enter at Bernard Street will, will be 15 years. So you wow. have to make sure that it's, it's, it's right. <laughs> and because if, if you look at our kind of sales journey, we had 400% sales increase year two to three. It was mm. ridiculous. It just went completely mad. And then year three to four was 20%. And then year four to five was like 10, 15%. Okay. So... You know, it's been really quick and then slowed down whilst we can kind of manage the quality. So once we were kind of get, getting there, I was like, right, now we can really focus on the delis. So we're obviously open Kingley, then we were opening Mortimer, and now we're kind of looking at... That China. makes sense, okay. And then once they're running, which now I feel like now we're going to have three, that kind of operation will be running really well, that we can now... Go back to, to that, deliveries. definitely. So... I remember you were saying that once you had that VC um, investment, you started kind of making those strategic hires. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to me a bit about those roles, what it is that they're actually doing, and how that's kind of freed you up? Mm-hmm. So, um, it's also coincided with me having a baby. <laughs> <laughs> just just casual so that kind of that kind of puts slightly different stance on their roles, I suppose, in that so I... Um, our managing director came on board when I went on my hypothetical um, maternity leave. And so her role was very much just step into my shoes. Yeah. But her experience is so much more than mine. I mean, okay. she's worked in in the industry for 20 years. You know, she has got incredible operational experience. And so I guess her job was to come on board and... You know, look at all of the processes that I'd put in place, which were basically on Excel spreadsheet, yeah. and make them real. Yeah. And, you know, kind of make the business grow up a little bit from okay. every kind of angle. Um, and her role is also to to kind of put the team in place around us. Okay. One thing I'm terrible at doing is employing people. Oh. I really am. It's embarrassing. I just like everyone, so I'm like, yeah, yeah. sure, join our team. <laughs> yeah. Really fun. We'll have a really fun time. La, 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 la. <laughs> Um, and so I really needed her to come on and kind of be, you know, be a bit more serious. Yeah. Um, which she's done. I mean, she's been absolutely brilliant. And the, and the company has transformed. You know, when you get really amazing people on board, and yes, you have to pay for them. You really do have to pay for them. You have to look after them. But the transformation that she's made is so much bigger than I would ever have been able to do on my own. That's what um, we always have to remember, that, yeah, we can't do it. It gets to a point where you can't do do it on your own to take it to the next level you just have to make that investment in people and it's hard I think as a founder to employ someone who you know is a lot better than you yeah but one thing that I've had to kind of reassess in the last couple of months is really try and work out what I'm good at yeah and not care about the things that I'm not good at and make sure that you have people doing them well and I think a lot of founders probably have the same thing as my my instinct I just tend to have a an instinct for things, you know. I yeah. know if something's right or wrong. I'm not the most organised person in the world, but that's where having 
a managing director, like Brad is our managing director, who, you know, personality-wise, we're, we're very different. Yeah. But from a, where we see the business going, we're completely on the same page, which is really good because we come in at completely different angles. I'm yeah. much more the sort of creative side of things. She's much more um, the operational side. Um, and so that works really well. What I find really interesting about you, though, is that while people... I've been shocked at people who've been, like, sitting next to you upstairs and didn't know that it was you, um, which, is, which is actually rare now, because if you think of just, just focusing on this kind of health and wellness revolution, it's been personalities that have driven whatever it is that they're offering, whether it's food, yoga, wellness, whatever. You have really let the business be at the forefront. Yeah. Was that intentional on your 100% side? Hundred intentional. I think because I had my Patreon business was called Lily's Lovely Bites. I mean, <laughs> so I, I mean, I obviously was never the face of it. I actually had a caricature. That's so embarrassing. Anyway, um, I knew that in order to grow a business, I didn't. Well, I didn't want to be at the forefront. Like the idea of taking a selfie. I thank God I kind of slightly missed that <laughs> that side of things. But I just, I'm not into that. I don't want my private life kind of all over social media yeah I'm just not that's not me at all I'm quite a private person and I always kind of said you know I will do things I want people to know that, that I'm behind the brand I want yeah. people to know that someone who really cares and really believes in you know my mission from the very beginning has been to get more people eating healthy food yeah and I'm doing everything I possibly can to make that happen and I want people to know that but at the same time I don't want them you know I don't want to be this kind of person saying look how amazing I am look how amazing my life is and you can have this too if you eat our food because yeah. it's completely rubbish yeah yeah um and food isn't about that food is you know I kind of want it to be their personal experience not yeah. kind of you know I always think it's the same kind of in the beauty world if, if I put this foundation on my face I'm going to look like this top model well actually you're not you're just going to look at yourself but with slightly nicer skin yeah and yeah. it's the same with food it's kind of like you know you're not that's not going to transform you entirely but it will make you feel a lot better and you know I think there needs to be some kind of disconnection with food and beautiful women yeah <laughs> because, no it's true you know and I think yeah it's definitely a conscious de- decision um and one that I'm really happy that I made but then I always say I would never you know I will always do things if it takes me to be in front of the camera to promote the business to make it bigger then I will do that and I'll make that decision because I want the business to grow yeah but you know it's a decision that I will make there and then rather than something that's strategic so that I'm kind of the personality behind the brand if that makes sense how are you taking care of yourself this is your baby <laughs> you're continually growing you have babies how 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 are you taking care of yourself and how has motherhood kind of made you have boundaries to a certain degree? Um, I think I'm probably taking care of myself in the sense that I try and sleep as much as I can. Yeah. So I go to bed early. Yeah. And I wake I mean, I st- I'm still breastfeeding my child in the night, so you know, I'm not sleeping that well, but you know, as much as I can get I, I try and do. And I think that's really important because clarity, I can't be creative unless I have clarity of mind. And the only thing that would give me that is sleep. So yeah. um, I probably drink slightly less than I used to. So that's <laughs> looking after myself. Um, I and I don't really. I go for long walks. I mean, that's kind of my. You know, this weekend I just walked and walked and walked. Didn't stop walking. And that's I, really nice. And that's you know, just having that quiet time, that clarity. I guess. Yeah, it's so important. I think. And. 
No, I don't really do anything else. I'm not like, massively into exercising, even though we sit here in <laughs> the studio. <laughs> um, but yeah, just kind of small things, you know, going back to the kind of quality time with people. Yeah. You know, I see my very best friends, I always try and see them once or twice a week. Um, whether that's coming over to my dinner or seeing them on the weekend or whatever it might be, you know, have quality time with my husband. My mum lives with me, which actually is what keeps me sane. Really? Um, so she looks after my daughter and then my son's at nursery. Um, so yeah, just kind of juggling it all. But then, you know, I have, I have terrible days sometimes. Right? Yeah. I definitely don't look after myself. And I'm knackered and I'm, my back is completely broken because I'm carrying a laptop and a child and, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm running around like a mad person. So you know we all have we all have those days. Mine probably slightly more frequent than most. No, but, but it's really funny. I wanted to tell you this because I'm trying to do this more when I see people doing a great job. I was actually doing another interview with someone who has a restaurant on this street too, and they were saying that when they opened their restaurant, they came here and kind of asked you for advice, and you were like really lovely and supportive. It was Adria. Oh, yeah. Oh, she's so lovely. Yeah. She's amazing, actually, what she's done. What she's done is incredible. Oh, no, she's great. And that's the thing I love about this industry. And what I love about more women being in the industry is I think the food industry has always seemed a bit harsh. Like, you have people like Gordon Ramsay kind of yeah. spearheading it. And it's like, actually, it's not like that. And Adria's just opened her unit in King's Cross. In King's Cross, yeah. Which we both, you know, we were both bidding on. Oh. Um, we actually pulled out. But still, um, you know... We were having conversations about that, That's and lovely. you know, I kind of emailed her to say congratulations. And I actually weirdly bumped into her in IKEA the other day. <laughs> She's like, "How's it all going?" And and you know, we kind of we talk about business and you know, new products we're launching and that sort of thing. And it's not; it kind of just takes that. It's a very kind of nice and loving industry. It's, it's really so nice. nice, and I guess it's the moment you shift, and you're like, it's not. A form of space of scarcity. So mm. long as you're really narrowing in on what you can do there will always be a space for multiple people. Totally. I massively believe that. And I also think one thing which is really important for people is don't look at your competitors too much. Like, know that they're there and know what they're doing. But just focus on your business because, if, as you said, there is always space in the market for people who are doing really great things. So if your thing is really great, it's going to be successful. So just don't worry about anyone else because you can get completely bogged down with it and it can be the ruin of you. And I've seen it happen to lots of people. So there you go, guys. Silence out the noise and start in listening to your inner voice. Lily, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Big thanks to Lily for being on the Lifestyle Edit podcast today. Lily has long been a huge source of inspiration for me and my team. Just with everything that she's accomplished with the Detox Kitchen is just so incredibly inspiring. So I really hope that you found today's podcast episode as valuable and insightful as I did. If you'd like to find out more about the Detox Kitchen, head over to their website, thedetoxkitchen.co.uk. And if you're in London or are heading to London anytime soon, I definitely recommend checking out the new deli on Bernard Street. And now over to you. I would love to find out what you thought of today's podcast episode. So head on over to Instagram. We are at the Lifestyle Edit. Leave us a comment and let us know what you thought. As always, make sure you're checking out thelifestyleedit.com because every single week we share a new inspiring story from a female founder. So head on over and let us know what you think. 
So in the meantime, have an incredible week and I can't wait to reconnect with you next Tuesday with another episode of the Lifestyle Edit Podcast.